Hey, good morning. Um, they sent me that video, I think it was on Tuesday, and I watched it in my office, and I just about ugly cried. You know what I mean? Like, that is so gripping, and we're so thankful for what God has done in Matt's life. And I'm excited for us to be able to watch this together next week and really celebrate how God provided for Matt and his family and just seeing how God worked through that situation. And we're going to celebrate that. We're going to celebrate the fact that Jesus is risen, which I hope you celebrate that every day um, because it is definitely something to celebrate every day. And so today we are going to uh, start our Easter at Connection series. And so I want to jump into that pretty quick. Um, we're, we finished the Philippians series, but today I actually want to read one verse from, from Philippians to get us started. And then we're going to look at uh, a lot of other verses today um, in the scripture. But why don't you turn with me there to um, Philippians chapter 4. Philippians chapter 4, and that's going to be in verse 12, is what we are going to read. Um, we'll read it, we'll pray, we'll jump in. It says, I know this is the Apostle Paul writing to the church in Philippi. I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any in every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you this morning for your provision in our life. I thank you for the provision of Jesus who took our place on the cross, who gave himself as a substitute for our sin. Lord, I thank you for that that you give us life. Even when we were dead in our sins and our transgressions against you, Lord, you sent Jesus and you gave us life. You took us from spiritual death to spiritual life. And today, Lord, we thank you for that. Father, I pray that today as your word is spoken, as your word is read, that, Lord, it would sink deeply into our hearts and produce a harvest in our life a hundred times that which is sown, that the earth would be filled with the knowledge of your glory. God, that we would enter into life with you and that we would rejoice because our names are written in heaven. Lord, we thank you for that today and we celebrate it. Lord, we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So quick question for you. How many of you would characterize yourself as a needy person? A needy person. Anybody say you're needy? Be honest and say you're needy. How many of you would say your spouse is needy? Don't, don't raise your hand. If you raise your hand, then, then we'll be counseling all week. It just takes up too much time, right? But, but you, you know people who seem needy, and, and you know people who uh, maybe uh, they're not. They, they really don't require much. But here Paul in Philippians chapter 4 is telling us um, that he has been in need, that he has felt need before. He, he says, I've been hungry. He says, I know what it is to not have. In other places, he talks about having been naked. He talks about um, having been cold in prison. He's been through all of these things. And he's had these felt needs that many of us have experienced. Felt needs. The thing I really want to challenge you with today, though, and this is a thought I really want us to look at. What if your greatest need is not your most felt need? What if your greatest need is not the one that always seems to be pulling on you and nagging at you? Because we are surrounded by felt needs, aren't we? We're surrounded by felt needs. In fact, I want you to look at some of these. How many of you have ever felt this need? 
huh? Especially now. That, that means you, you're about to spend another $7,500, right? And, and how many of you, this light comes on and you still see how far you can go? Some of y'all stop and you do the right thing. Of, other of, of us, of, uh, me included, we try to kind of plot it out. Well, if I go here and go there and go there and go there, I can still make it to this gas station, right? And, and so we kind of plot that out. I just, we're just not going to be told what to do by light, right? And so we do that. How many of y'all have ever felt this need? Nothing worse. You're riding down the road and all of a sudden it's, right? And you know, I mean, you, you got to do something about that. It's a felt need. How about this one? You ever been cold? It's a felt need, right? How many of you, you're getting older, and the older you get, you're like me, the older you get, the colder you get. It's just different. I don't even know how to explain it, but used to, I wouldn't have been cold, and, and now I'm just freezing. How about this one? How many of you ever been hungry? Hungry? Anybody get hangry? Any hangry people in here? I'm one of those too. Got a lot of faults and flaws. I get, if I get hungry, I get in a bad mood, right? And so we, we have these, these felt needs. We feel these needs oftentimes. How about this? How many of you need a vacation? Some of y'all just got back from vacation. Must be nice. Well, it was nice. It, and, and some of us need a vacation, right? But how many of you, even though that tropical water, it can be refreshing and all, how many of you are a little bit suspect of the ocean? Anybody? And so your need is maybe not to get in the water. Your need is if I'm in the water, I need to get out of the water, right? Because for you, this is what you're thinking. I'm out there, but what if this guy is swimming around? And so then you're thinking, and you can't even enjoy the water because you're almost convinced of this, that this will turn into this, and you'll be eaten. And so for you, the need is to get out of the water. But there's felt needs everywhere. The challenge is, and this is what I really want to challenge us with today, what if our felt needs are not the greatest needs we have? What if there are greater needs in our life than what seems to always be pulling on us? Because here's the thing. We live in a broken, sinful, fallen world. And in this world, survival becomes an instinct. And when survival becomes an instinct, God can quickly become an afterthought. We are pulled on by all of these felt needs we are in survival mode. And when survival becomes an instinct, God can quickly become an afterthought. And we can look at it and we can say, well, no, I mean, we live in the West. We live in the United States of America. We've got all that we need. We're not in survival mode. Then why do you go to work? Got to get paid. Got to get paid so I can go buy groceries. Why do you go buy groceries? You got to eat. Why don't we send our kids to school so one day they'll be able to buy groceries? Why don't we go to the doctor to get checkups? Because we want to survive. Why do we worry about a food shortage? Because we might not survive. Why do so many of us worry about things happening to us? Because we, whether we realize it or not, we live in survival 
mode. And in our own ways, we are still tilling this cursed ground, this ground that's been cursed because of sin, and we're trying to make it, and we're trying to be fruitful in a broken world. And the thing I want you to hear is sometimes our felt needs are not our greatest needs. In fact, I'll be straight up to the point with you. Our greatest need is to be reconciled into a relationship with God. That is the greatest need. Because if we are not connected to him, then we are not connected to the life giver. And if we are not living the life of God, then he is not glorified and we are not truly alive. And so we realize this, that sometimes our felt needs are not really our greatest need. And there is this need to be reconciled, reconnected into a life-giving relationship with Jesus. But why is that? Why is that the case? Let's look at these passages, Genesis, 20, or Genesis chapter 2, beginning in verse 5. Genesis chapter 2, beginning in verse 5, or 15, I'm sorry, I can't see. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. And the Lord God commanded the man, you are free to eat from the tree, from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For when you eat from it, you will certainly die. So God gives some really clear instruction. Let's go to Exodus chapter 20 now. Exodus chapter 20. This is when Moses is given the Ten Commandments. I'm not going to read every word of this. I'm just going to kind of go through and hit each commandment. But listen to this. He says, you shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the waters below. He says, you shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God. Remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Honor your father and your mother so that you may live long in the land the Lord your God is giving you. I'll read that again for all the teenagers trying to help some parents out. Honor your father and mother so that you may live long because they brought you into this world and they can take you out, right? You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. I want you to see this as we look at these verses and realize that the earth was created for a very specific purpose. It wasn't just by happenstance that it was created. It was created with a very specific purpose. And because it was created with a very specific purpose to glorify God, to fill, fill the earth with the knowledge of his glory, that he would be glorified, that we would have life because it was created with a very specific purpose, um, it, it required a very specific design. And that design was intended to be one that glorified God. That's why sin is sin. It's because it's outside of God's design. And when we live outside of God's design, it does not bring God glory, nor does it bring us life. It literally means to miss the mark. We have missed the mark of God's intent in his design. And because the earth was created with a specific purpose, it was created with a specific design. That specific design requires specific instructions. And we see that in Genesis chapter 2, 15 through 17. He gave very specific instructions. Eat from any tree in the garden, but not that tree. 
We go to Exodus chapter 20, and there's other, uh, other uh, commandments and laws that, that were put into place, but we just look at these 10. He gave very specific instruction. Why was that? Was it so it would be narrow and strangling and take life from us? Absolutely not. It was to be broad and life-giving. I mean, think about this. You're in the Garden of Eden, and he says, eat from any tree, just not that one. Broad and life-giving, but specific in instruction. And the instruction was to keep us in his design and keep us within his life and in relationship with the life-giver that he would be glorified and it would be good for us. But we don't really like instruction. We don't like commandments very much. We don't care much for the law. But God puts these in place because they're good for us and they're glorifying to him. I want you to think about it this way. If you are a parent of small children, some of you are, and your yard bordered up to this road, to this interstate. It's your yard, it's grass and then pavement. And you got small children. What would a loving parent do? Other than move, put up a fence. Some of y'all said it, you'd put up a fence. You put up a fence to keep your child from being able to get into an area that's gonna harm them. But here's the thing, for us as people, we don't like boundaries. And when God put boundaries, even though they were good boundaries to keep us in his design and keep us in life and bring glory to him, we, we didn't like that. And so in this situation, this is how we would end up. Right? We want to climb the fence. There's not a saying that goes, the grass is not always greener on the other side because we haven't tried the other side. It's a reality of our nature. We don't like boundaries. And even though God put these boundaries in place so that it would be life-giving and glorifying to him, we don't like it. But then we wonder why we end up like this. We don't like that. And God gave these specific instructions. In the garden, it was broad. It was specific, but it was broad and to be life-giving and glorifying to him. But we didn't like it. We come to the commandments and Exodus chapter 20. And let me, let me show you, this is how arrogant, stubborn, sinful we are. How quick we are to rebel against God. God. God would do this. God would say, thou shalt not. And humanity basically said this. Hold my beer and watch this. That's about how it went. Watch this, God. Watch this. You said don't do that. Watch this. And that tends to be our nature. And here's the thing, it can seem kind of trivial, like, well, but, but what's the big deal? I mean, and here's the thing I want for you. I want you to understand the weight of this. I want you to understand the consequences of this. I don't know how well you're going to be able to see this one, but can y'all make this one out? Let me read it to you so you'll know what it is. It says, in Congress, July 4th, 1776. What is that? Declaration of Independence. Such a huge day in the life of our nation that we celebrate that day every year. It was a declaration of our independence from Great Britain, from the king. 
We don't need a king over us. Let me tell you, this is basically what we were telling the king. We don't need you. We don't want you. Leave me alone. And see, here's the reality and the weight of this, guys. Through our sin and our rebellion, we declared our independence from God, the king of kings, and we broke the relationship, and therefore we died. We basically looked God in the face and said, we don't need you, we don't want you, leave me alone and let me do it myself. It was our own declaration of independence, and it brought death because it separated us from the life giver. Sin and rebellion declaring our independence is moving away from God. We don't need you, God. We don't need you. But listen, there's no life apart from the life giver. And the moment that mankind declared its independence from God by stepping outside of his boundaries, outside of his design, telling him we don't need you, we don't want you, leave us alone, our greatest need became reconciliation to the life giver. But how? How do you remove guilt like that? How do you remove that type of guilt? I would look to ourselves in a way in this. In a way, because we inherently understand that Injustice deserves justice, don't we? We see injustice on TV every day. If you watch the news, there's injustice everywhere. We see injustice in Ukraine. And we're like, go get them. We understand this. And we inherently understand that the punishment should fit the crime. You ever heard that? The punishment should fit the crime. And that's not just something we made up. This is something that God shows us even in his word, that justice is an equal punishment for the crime. Let's look at Leviticus chapter 17, verse 11. So we went Genesis, Exodus. We're just going on through Leviticus. I promise we're not going to go through every book of the Bible. But it says in Leviticus 17, 11, and this is speaking of the sacrificial system that was set up. Verse 11 says, for the life of a creature is in the blood, and I've given it to you to make atonement for yourselves on the altar. Atonement is to, basically, if you want to break that word down, at one minute, is to bring us back into relationship with God. And so he says, I've given you the blood to make atonement on the altar. He said, it is the blood that makes atonement for one's life. Well, why is that? Look over in Leviticus chapter 24, verse 17. He says, anyone who takes the life of a human being must be put to death. What does that say? Life for life, right? Anyone who takes the life of someone's animal must make restitution. Life for life. You kill their bull, you give them a bull. Anyone who injures his, their neighbor is to be injured in the same manner. Fracture for fracture, eye for eye, tooth for tooth. The one who has inflicted the injury must suffer the same injury. Whoever kills an animal must make restitution, but whoever kills a human being is to be put to death. What's he talking about there? He's talking about an equal punishment for a crime, but justice must be done. We need to understand God is a God of righteousness and justice, and to not punish 
misdeeds, to not punish injustice, would leave him no longer being righteous and just. So he even in his word says, there's got to be a punishment that is equal to the crime. We see that in these verses. We know this inherently, that guilt has to be paid for. It has to be made right. We even see this, check this out, in our justice system, the image of a scale. A lot of times if you're in a courtroom, only because of jury duty, okay? A lot of times if you're in a courtroom, you'll see an image of scales up on the wall. Why? It, it, it means balance, means fairness, equality, equal punishment for the crime. And we see that that's what God's teaching here. He talks about a fracture for a fracture. He talks about an eye for an eye. Who are you taking in a fight? I'm going John Wayne all day, the Duke, baby. That's what I'm thinking. How about a tooth for a tooth? This is mostly for people in Alabama. And so we realize that. But then he also says life for life. If a human dies, if, if someone kills the human, then a, that human must die. But God had put in this sacrificial system where they would go and for the guilt and the sin that they had all committed, beginning all the way back in Genesis chapter 3, verse 21, in the first three verses of the, or chapters of the Bible, we see where he sacrifices an animal to cover the sin and shame of Adam and Eve because they'd sinned. And so God puts in place this sacrificial system that they would sacrifice a lamb, a bull, a goat, a dove, something. They were shedding of blood. Why? Because the life was in the blood. And he's saying if there's going to be restitution, then something has to die. In fact, in Hebrews 9.22, the book of Hebrews in the New Testament, the author of Hebrews says that there is no forgiveness of sin without the shedding of blood. There had to be a punishment. And so we see this. We see fracture for fracture. We see eye for eye. We see tooth for tooth. And then we go here and it's life for life, right? Sorry, kids and why. Does that even make sense? Am I, is, is the sheep as warm and cuddly and fuzzy and cute as he looks? Is his life worth the same as my family's life? Is that an equal punishment for a crime? If that's an equal punishment, then there are criminals in prison all over the United States that would love to be replaced by a goat. But we know that's not right. So why did God put in this sacrificial system? The writer of Hebrews also said the blood of bulls and goats can never take away the sin of a person. Why? Because it's not an equal punishment for the crime. Our guilt remains. It's not a price that can purchase us out of the grip of sin and death and hell and the grave. So why did this happen? God shows us really early an example of why this happens. If you go to Genesis, look in chapter 22. This is all about, this section is all about a man by the name of Abraham. He was Abram. He became Abraham. His wife was Sarah. She became Sarah. Um, back in verse 15, God comes to Abraham. Abraham, Abraham is like 100 years old. God comes to him and he promises Abraham. He says, look, I'm going to give you a son. 
And Abraham is like, you know, you've already promised me to bless me with all kinds of things and people, and you've multiplied my stuff. He says, I have no one to give it to. He says, I'm going to give you a son. Abraham and Sarah actually laugh because they're like, are you really, at our age, you're going to give us a son? And God says, yes, I'm going to give you a son. And, and so you go into verses six, or chapter 16 and 17, and there's um, a son born to them named Isaac, named Isaac. An interesting thing is way back in Genesis 15, when he promises to give Abraham a son, it says that Abraham believed God and God credited it to him as righteousness. In other words, Abraham was not righteous. He was a pagan just like everybody else during that time. And yet God comes to him and when he reveals himself to him and he makes his promise of giving him a son, he says, it says that he believed God and God credited it to him as righteousness. That's going to be really important. Right now I want to read verses 1 through 17 here. In, uh, or in 14, here in Genesis chapter 22. It says, sometime later, God tested Abraham. So now Isaac has been born, and God comes to Abraham to test him. He said to him, Abraham, here I am, he replied. Then God said, listen to this, take your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac, and go to the region of Moriah. Sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on a mountain, I will show you. Early the next morning, Abraham got up and loaded his donkey. He took with him two of his servants and his son Isaac. When he had cut enough wood for the burnt offering, he set out for the place God had told him about. On the third day, Abraham looked up and saw the place in the distance. He said to his servants, stay here with the donkey while I go. I and the boy go over there. We will worship and then we will come back to you. Abraham took the wood for the burnt offering and placed it on his son Isaac, and he himself carried the fire and the knife. As the two of them went together, Isaac spoke up and said to his father Abraham, Father, yes, my son, Abraham replied. The fire and wood are here, Isaac said, but where's the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham said, God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. And the two of them went on together. When they reached the place God had told them about Abraham, built an altar there and arranged the wood on it. He bound his son Isaac and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then he reached out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. But the angel of the Lord called out to him from heaven, Abraham, Abraham, here I am, he replied. Do not lay a hand on the boy, he said. Do not do anything to him. Now I know that you fear God because you have not withheld from me your son, your only son. Abraham looked up and there in a thicket he saw a ram caught by its horns. He went over and took the ram and sacrificed it as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called that place the Lord will provide. And to this day it is said on the mountain of the Lord it will be provided. I want you to understand this is hundreds of years before Jesus ever came on the scene. But this sacrificial system and this account with Abraham and Isaac it points us directly through all those hundreds of years to the time when Jesus would be the one who gets sacrificed. It's incredible when you really begin to look at it. There's, there's three things I want you to understand that we can learn from this. There's three different things. The first thing is this, that righteousness or right standing with God, reconciliation to the life giver could only happen through God's provision. We see God provided on this mountain. The second thing we see is that a sacrifice would have to be made. And the third thing we see is that right, right relationship with God would come by faith through belief and trust 
in his promise. Belief and trust in him. And when you read this story, go back and read it on your own sometime. There's so many similarities between Jesus and Isaac. It says that this was Abraham's only son whom he loved. Jesus was God's only son whom he loved. Both of them were sons of promise. Both sacrifices were either at the same mountain or in the same vicinity. People will tell you this, that when Abraham was led to this mountain, it was in the area of Jerusalem. Many people think that Isaac was to be sacrificed on the same exact mountain that Jesus went to the cross. If not, they do know that it was in the same vicinity. Both of them had wood for the sacrifice on their back. Both were bound to the wood. Both trusted their father. Both were submissive even to death. Both fathers were willing to go through with the sacrifice. Both fathers were looking to the resurrection of their sons. Even with Abraham in, in Hebrews, uh, the book of Hebrews again, it talks about how Abraham had reasoned that if he killed Isaac, God would raise him from the dead because he was the promised son through whom his lineage would continue. Both resurrections were predicted. In Jesus' case, they had been prophesied. For hundreds of years, both sacrifices were provided by God. Both sacrifices brought the shedding of blood. Both sacrifices were a substitute. Both sacrifices were for sin. Both sacrifices demonstrated God's love for us. Here's the one, though, that gets me. This is the one that amazes me the most. God would not let Abraham do to Isaac what he ultimately did to Jesus. God provided a goat to take the place of Isaac. God provided Jesus to take the place of the lamb so that he could ultimately take my place and your place. The sky should have gone dark because of God's judgment on me and God's judgment on you. The earth should have been shaking, not because of Jesus' death, but because of God's retribution on us. It should have been me, and it should have been you who declared, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But we never will have to if we're in Christ because it was declared by Christ for us. It should have been you and I who continued to live under the curse of sin and death. It should have been us who came under the weight of condemnation. It should have been me and it should have been you who stood before God waiting on due justice. It should have been me who was condemned to eternal death. And it should have been you who was condemned to eternal death. It should have been me and it should have been you upon whom the wrath of God fell for our sin. But instead, it was placed upon Jesus, and he took the wrath for us. I want you to understand this. It should have been your cross, and it should have been my cross. 